श्री गुरु वैष्णव गुरु परंपरा की जाए हरि नाम प्रभु की जाए कौर भक्तवृंद की जाए बहुत प्रेमानंद So we are discussing Sri Chaitanya Shikshastakam, Sri Shikshastakam of Chaitanya Dev. Shiksha means teaching, and Astakam means eight. So there are eight teachings, like the Buddha's eightfold path, something like that. But this is the eightfold path of Gaudiya Vaishnavism, eightfold path of Krishna Bhakti as uh, as tread. By Sri Chaitanya himself, and although in his youth, prior to the age of twenty-five, Sri Krishna Chaitanya was a great scholar. He was known as Nimai Pandit. Pandit means, of course, scholar. And Nimai was a a name that. Uh, a nickname for him, a nickname for Vishwambar Mishra, his family name, nickname. He was given us nickname Nimai because he was born under a neem tree. Neem tree is uh, grows readily in uh, in that area in West Bengal, along the Ganga Delta, the delta of the Ganges, as it pours into the Bay of Bengal. And uh, it's a medicinal tree, neem tree. Its leaves are very bitter. It's used for cooking bitter-tasting things, and uh, for medicinal purposes. Previous to his birth, his mother had had one son, but seven miscarriages. And uh, so the ladies, in a superstitious way, they wanted to be do whatever they could. The, the boy would not be attacked by ghosts and die in, in childbirth or thereafter was their idea. So the neem tree was being medicinal and whatnot was considered to be auspicious in a way, even though overtly it's kind of inauspicious being bitter. It keeps ghosts away, we thought, something like that. So. He was nicknamed Nimai after the name tree. And as it came to pass, he was very much um, about driving the ghosts from our heart of desire that runs on two tracks. Desire that runs on two tracks that uh, keeps us off track from our pursuing and attaining our real prospect in life. These two tracks are the desires of, well, we can say, to put it in two small words, I and mine. Small words with big implications. We are, materially speaking, our I, I should say, sense of self, is our my. You follow me? We are made up, our sense of self, materially speaking, is made up of our desires and attachments, that which we call mine. That's what we're made out of. We don't stop to think, as we should, that 
the reason that we find something attractive and meaningful and we care about it is simply because we've considered it ours. Let me give you an example of what I mean. If your friend has a car, if you, if you read in the paper there was a car accident, you might have some compassion for a moment for the people that might have been injured and so forth, but you don't think about the car. Oh, there was a car and it broke. That's really not, not an issue. But if it's your car, it would be a big issue. Right? Because of my, because it's my car. It's the same thing. It's just the same make, same model. Somebody else may crash and it doesn't bother you, but it bothers you because it's, it's yours, you think. It's mine. It's my car. So, what is it about that car that makes it attractive? The sense that it's mine. And what does that mean? That I've projected myself into the car. I've identified with it. You understand? It's part of my identity. And that's why, for that matter, we buy a particular car. The advertising campaign is obviously looking for a certain type of psychology. They know who their customers will likely be, and they market the car, or whatever the product may be, accordingly. So when we purchase the car, whatever it is, all of our mys, they make up our I, our sense of self. We don't stop to think often enough, if at all, but the reason, using this example, that the car if it is in difficulty, becomes a difficulty for me, because it's it's me. It's my part of my identity and my makeup. So what's important in this is me. In other words, I've projected myself into that particular car. That's why it's important to me. You follow what I'm saying? So what's important is me. Is that consciousness that I am. It has a capacity to project itself into material things and be identified with them. After all, there are experiencers and there is the experienced. Matter is experienced and we experience. If there's any experience that we have in our life that is most significant, what is it? What is the most significant experience that we have in life, human life? It's the experience that we experience. This is a huge insight. Human life is a great time. This is the time in which we live. We should not think in terms of decades or centuries, but that we are living in human form, in human dress. There's life all around us in so many other dresses. What distinguishes us? First, that we can know that we exist. We can experience. That we experience. This is a huge time, wonderful time to be living. Human life. Now, as valuable as uh, it is, it's really only as valuable as we use the opportunity to our fullest advantage. So to use that to our fullest advantage, we have to understand this identity that's made up of our attachments and desires. We have to understand how, although we are an experiencer, we have projected ourselves into matter, which in and of itself has no experience. If matter mattered, 
independently of consciousness, who would know about it? Who would care? Do you follow? Consciousness is the knower, the experiencer. We lend ourselves, our life, we are a unit of life, to matter, animating it. But unfortunately, at the cost of knowing ourselves. It's at the loss of the self. When we identify with matter, we have needs. And matter is, as we say, in all forms, here today and gone tomorrow. In order for it to endure any particular form for any amount of time, there are necessities, like this body has necessities. It has to eat, it has to rest, and so forth. It has needs. We've identified with it, so we have needs. And when we're needy, then we're on the take. You follow me? To that extent, we cannot be givers. And so this life of material identification that puts us on the take, it's a land of hunters and, and hunted, so to speak. Darwin said it something like that. We agree with him to some extent. Struggle for existence. Bhagavad says the same thing. Jivo jivasya jivana. While he read the world in this way and came to an atheistic conclusion, the Bhagwat, great Bhagwat text, so dear to Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, brings out the same point and sees it as tremendous impetus for understanding God. Negative impetus, albeit, to move from the land of taking to the land of giving. Love, after all, is about giving, it's not about taking. Giving. So when we have identified ourselves with matter, then it's at the cost loss of ourself. Because what we're realizing, if we if we look carefully at human life, is that what we are by nature is a giver. That's what we are. That means to say that in human life we realize that we, we have the opportunity to do something voluntarily. What freedom? And love is voluntary. There's not a rule, basically. You have the opportunity to do something voluntarily. This is a huge opportunity to give. And we all do it to some extent. And to come out then from this realm of, of taking. And what happens is we do that, we, we find ourselves, we give, and we, we, we become complete, we become whole. It's mystical, you see. Life is not reasonable. It's not rational. It doesn't make sense. It's mystical. Is it rational that if you give, you will get? We say you give and you get because it's our experience, but it's not reasonable. It transcends reason. Life is mystical. What would appear to be making to cause our progress causes us to regress. And what would appear to cause us to regress causes us to progress. Like they say in the corporate world, you, know, you have to like, step on other people's heads to get ahead. But in spiritual life we say, if you get your head stepped on, then you'll go ahead. Something like that. They're always putting these crazy people their head to the floor, head to the floor. I do it too. Bad association. <laughs> what can be done? Move in a backward way, apparently, is to actually go forward. So, 
it is us, that unit of, of experiencing. It's not that we have, we have eyes, therefore we can see, or ears, therefore we can hear. The eyes are getting in the way of our seeing. We are the seer. It's not because we have a mind we can think. The mind is getting in the way of our knowing. We are the knower. And we project ourselves into matter, and then that object becomes important to us. The reason it's important is because we're in it. It means we're important, not the thing. We, the experiencer, consciousness. Now, as I said, when we think in terms of mine, then a sense of I develops that is really at the cost of knowing and experiencing our real self. We lend ourselves to matter, we animate matter, and matter takes over our life. And what really matters doesn't matter to us. Here we're talking about things that are important. You're all very bright, intelligent, thoughtful, and sincere people. That's why you've come here, this type of uh, discussion and atmosphere. But the majority of human beings are not interested in such pursuit, unfortunately. Matter has taken over their lives, and our lives to, to some extent. Just like it takes a person, a viewer, to turn on the television. So who's more important, the viewer or the television? The viewer. But the television may take over the life of the viewer. Someone has to come and say, you got a life, turn that thing off. Come on. <laughs> it happens. So we've turned on matter, we've animated. Jeeva, what is it? Gita say? Apareyamitastanyam prakritim vidime param. Jiva Bhuta Mahabaho Yayeram Dharyate Jagat. The whole Jagat, the world, we've animated, we're turning it on. But in the meantime, it's taken over our lives. We cannot see the difference between ourselves and it. And what it needs or appears to need, we think are our needs. And so we're out trying to get it, and everybody's trying to do the same thing. It's not a friendly environment. No matter how beautifully you talk about it or try to mentally adjust it and so forth. This is our desperate condition. So the sense of I that is derived from this my, it will not endure. Ayurhadati vaipum samudyanastam Such beautiful poetry. The Bhagavad says to us, appreciate this example. What speaks more loudly to it? This is not book talk. We write books about this, but this is talking about to, only books are to help us look and see what's already there. What could be more profound? and speak louder to us than the sun, which appears through our movement to cross across the sky every day. It's such a huge event that if it didn't appear on the Santa Fe horizon tomorrow morning, everything would stop. It would make the newspapers, but no one could read it without light. So it's a huge event, the sun appearing, moving across the sky. And the rishis, they would stop and think about it. What is it saying to us? What is it saying? What is it saying? The world is talking to us. The rishis said it in Bhagavad, Ayur Harati, Vaipumsam, Ujjanastan, Chayanasau, Tasyartaya Tumunitta, Uttamaslokavartaya. It's beautiful, but not just the sight of it, you, know, you can probably get some beautiful sunsets here and sunrises. When I was younger, we used to do that, to look at the sunrise in you know, California, augmented in the 60s, 
try to make it more stunning and, and beautiful. That's beautiful, but beautiful really in a profound way, because it's talking to us, the whole world is talking to us. Like in this poetry of Chaitanya Dev, in one place he says, we haven't gotten this far in the discussion, but one place he says, Trinadapi Sunichena, Tararapi Sahishnuna, Amani Namana Dena, Kirtaniya Sadahari. It's beautiful poetry, but it's not that he sat down to write a poem. The verse says, Won't you be more humble than a blade of grass, more tolerant than a tree, and so on. What's happening is the environment was speaking to him. The grass spoke to him. He was so attentive. This is why we need a guru, because we're not paying attention to what God is saying. We can't hear, we're distracted. So it comes in a form they're like an ambassador to speak loudly to us, to speak louder than your mind, to give eyes to see that are better than 2020 vision, to see what cannot be seen with eyes, materialize, to give premamjana, premamjana charita bhakti bilachanena, sandasare varileyeshu bilokarantam yam shamasundaram, achintaguna surupam. To see achinta guna swarupa. You want to see a beautiful form. Our eyes are looking always for a beautiful form to see. <laughs> this is their preoccupation. To see beauty. To appreciate beauty. What beauty can be drawn from these eyes? When gopis, the brajajana, the brajasundaris of Krishna, milkmaidens, they saw the form of Krishna. What did they say? What did they say? Fie on you, Brahma, creator God of the world. What do you know about artistry, craft, and creation? If you're going to make a creation and you're going to make the human body, which is the most complex form of, of life on earth. So the idea would be it, it's more developed and has greater capacity than to take advantage of what the, uh, the natural world is about, the nature of reality and being and so forth, with the senses. It's like, you know, many animals can't see all colors and, and so forth. In human life, the eyes are very developed in all the senses for reading the environment. What do they say? What kind of creator are you? What do you know about anything? About you create eyes to see beauty, but you've made eyes that blink. This is what they said. That meant for one blink, we cannot see Krishna. What kind of form? What kind of form is that? What they saw? Sham Sundaram. That they could think. We, we blink, we don't think that we blink, even. So beautiful was the object that they were seeing. That they could reflect like this. They were just village girls, uneducated. How profound. Guru comes to give Premanjana, Premanjana, Bhaktivilochanena. This better eyes to see, to drown out the voice of the mind. What is the voice of the mind? Informed as it is by the senses. The voice of the mind is like this. I like this, I don't like that. This is good, this is bad. That's happy, this is sad. In other words, we get impressions through our tactile sense, through our sense of sight, through our sense of hearing and smelling and so forth, of the world, the environment. They're relayed to the central computer of our mind. 
and the mind evaluates that in a basic twofold way, sankalpa vikalpa. It says, good, bad, happy, sad, hot, cold. And the problem with this is what? That your happies are my sads, your goods are my bads, your hearts are my colds. We're at odds with one another. And which is it? Is it hot or cold? Is it good or bad? Is it happy or sad? It's all relative to the mind and the instruments of the senses which we're relying upon to perceive that are so imperfect. This is the evidence that they're imperfect. That everybody comes up with different conclusions. They may agree largely on some things, always some nuance of difference, and they may disagree entirely. But as long as we're reading the environment with these imperfect instruments, we cannot arrive at the sense of harmony that we think life must be about ultimately, that we strive for, that we look, we look for the unity. We are experiencing a diversity that's uncomfortable. We are at odds with one another. So we seek a unity, but we never arrive at it through this method. So Guru comes to speak louder than the mind, so to speak, and to give new eyes to see, premanjana, to give an ointment to the eyes of love. Prem means love. Premanjana, ointment of love. Premanjana chavita bhakti virachanena. So that you can see beyond what these eyes will see. So you can know beyond what mind can afford you. And what does it afford you? What does that good company allow you to see? It allows us to see the picture of reality that is not limited by the senses, distorted by the senses and the mind. And these great uh, mystics, devotees, this is what they saw, like gopis, these milkmen, this is what they saw. They saw Krishna. They learned from the Guru, if the Guru is going to speak louder than your mind, he's going to tell you not to take, but to become a giver and teach you how to give, how to begin to give in a, in a systematic way so that you can come to comprehensive giving. Everybody knows, and it's universally accepted, that selfishness is unbecoming. What Chaitanya Mahaprabhu has done has simply taken this universal principle and played out the full ramifications. Where did he end up? Krishna Leela. That is what it's about. These pictures of Krishna that you see, you know, it's artwork and so forth, it's profound. It's a canvas on which it's drawn. We're speaking about the canvas here, as you can see. It's rather philosophical. It's expression of love well grounded in reasoning that the very basic reasoning reasoning of which gives us the sense to turn away from the reading of the world that the senses provide for us to understand it to be distorted and not in my interest to move away from taking the false sense of need that the material identification uh, imposes upon us, to move away from that. Then you start to, to, to know the fullness of yourself as an experiencer, as a knower, and so forth. You're moving from taking to giving, and when you go all the way, this is what these gopis represent, these milk maidens, of, it's what they, that's the <coughs> whole idea behind it. Complete giving, absolute giving. This is what the mystics saw. They saw this play, if you will, divine play of God, reality playing 
as though the ultimate reality had a love life of its own, a confidential affair, and that they could participate in it, and as it means by becoming a giver, in the full sense of the term. They saw the full taker, Krishna, and they understood the reasoning why. Krishna represents full taking because they could see that the true center capable of taking is such because by doing so everyone else is nourished. Do you understand? And when you have the idea of a supreme taker it's a little bit off-putting. You're going to take? Krishna says in the Gita a nice thing he says I'm the supreme enjoyer. Bhuktaram jagyapatapasam he says, Of all sacrifice, I'm the enjoyer. It all comes to me. I'm the controller of everything. It's a little hard to swallow. He's saying, Everything for my enjoyment. I control everything. It means, conversely, nothing for your enjoyment. And you cannot own anything. You think, well, How can I digest that? But then he says, Suridam Sarvabhutanam. He's saying, in effect, but if you accept it, then what happens is, rather than dealing with me on unfriendly terms, trying to be the enjoyer, trying to be the owner, recognizing that that's my position, then Suridam Sarvabhutanam. I become your friend. Suddenly, from nothing, having nothing, you become the friend of the person who owns everything who's the supreme enjoyer, your position, without trying, you see, has become so great. So to move away from taking, move in the direction of giving, this is the idea of spiritual life, and mystics who have done so, they, this is what they saw. These leelas depicted in the art, leela means to play. It's the opposite of karma, which means to work. We're all working. Why are we working? Because we owe because we're taking from the environment out of a sense that if we don't, we won't exist. It's a false notion, but nonetheless, that's where we're at. So we're taking. And when we take, you owe. And when you owe, it means you have to continue to work. So it's obligatory work, karma. Leela is also movement, and it looks like karma. If you look at the pictures of Krishna, for example, it looks like oh, a young boy and a young girl. They're Indian, but they're, they're doing the same thing. They sell herding cows and guy down the street has some cows. What's the difference? The difference is one person working under the bondage of karma and Krishna is simply playing. The difference between work and play. We talked about this the other night. And the play... Uh, yeah, it's freedom. It's freedom. Because it's all about giving. Now it's play. Uh, and and there's, uh, there's no harm there. It's a drama. So the move in this direction, this is the idea that Chaitanya Mahaprabhu came to, to speak to us about. And it means to move away from my and I. The sense of I that is derived from the sense of mine or my. We're a little reluctant to move away from that because what will we be? Well, the verse we're going to talk about tonight, if we get that far, is that's what it's about. It's about who we can be, what we can be, when we give up and unravel the sense of I 
that comes from this sense of my, from our attachments and our desires. We're a little reluctant to do that. What, what, well, what will be left of me is the idea. Oh, so much, such a valuable thing. Hmm? Chaitanya Mahaprabhu wanted to talk a little bit about that. As I said earlier, he was known as Nimai Pandit. I'll explain a little bit the meaning of Nimai and how he created, although he's named after the Neem tree, which is kind of inauspicious in, in, in one sense because it's bitter, but it keeps away ghosts, it has an auspicious effect. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like I say how the world really works. What might appear to be unfavorable to your senses might actually be favorable for you. So Nimai and Pandit, he was very learned, learned scholar, oh, so learned. Nadia became a, a center of learning and great pundits would come there to test the measure of their learning. And as a boy, only Nimai Pandit defeated the biggest uh, scholar of the time. But when he took Diksha, initiation from his guru, he put down the knowledge altogether. So you would think, my point is, that a great scholar like Nimai Pandit would have written many things, but he only wrote eight verses called Shikshastakam. Shiksha, teaching, instruction, and Astakam, eight. Only eight, and the mystical poems only. He left knowledge for a purpose. He showed more knowledge than anyone of the time, and then he put it all down. And then when he would seek to express what he was about, he did it in song, in dance, and in poetry, which are best means to try to convey the experience of giving, the fullness of giving, the getting that giving is about. That is, you can't hold up and show it to somebody, I got this, but you, you're filled with it, and, and you can't, you can't explain it. You, you can appreciate this point, that when you do something for someone, let's say you, you give, if somebody gets a gift and you did it and you don't let them know that you gave it, then you just watch them become happy. And This is really giving, you see, when you don't want to be recognized for it. How will that work? So many people give a gift and the man says, thank you, thank you, oh, thank you, oh, it's very nice. One gift comes and there's no card attached who gave it. It doesn't matter how small it is. That person who gave it becomes more on the mind of the receiver of the gift than anybody else who gave a gift. You've got to find that person out. Who was that? Who gave that? Like in our Sangha, then based on our talking like this and writing books, people give some support to us. That supports how we live. I have a monastery in Northern California. So... That's all we do, and whatever comes in, we, we live on that. So one fellow, I was looking at the bank statement, and month after month, somebody's putting $108 in the bank every month. Who is that? I couldn't, th- everybody else is giving, some people give me more than $108. But that person was more on my, whoever it was, I still haven't found out. Who is that person? You see, how Bhagwan's mind will go to you, God's mind will go to you, if you give without any expectation of taking. This is bhakti. Shuddha bhakti. Without any desire to get and without any desire to know. I said, material desire runs on two tracks earlier. Getting, my, and knowing. 
A sense of I or knowing comes from that my. It's a false knowing. But material desire runs on two tracks. Mine and I. Mine and I. And these take us off track. They get us off track from pursuing and attaining our real prospect in life. What we really are. What our potential is. Our highest potential. So Chaitanya Mahaprabhu wanted to speak about these things. Tonight he says what? We're discussing the first verse of Shikshastakam. It's the first verse glorifying the chanting of Krishna Nam, the name of Krishna. He has given seven effects of chanting with a view to compel us to have faith in, oh, the efficacy of this, that I should, I should attach myself to this. It's a good idea with all the things that will come from this. We talked about two or three of them. We're on the one, two, three, fourth one now as they appear represented in the first verse. And they are explained in detail in the subsequent verses, each of them. Hilayati says, again in poetry, and it's rather mystical, Bidja vadu jivanam. Bidja vadu jivanam. What does it mean? Even if we render it in English. Vidya vadu jivanam. Vadu means, actually means wife. Jivanam means life. And vidya means knowledge. So he says, this kirtan, it is the, the life of the bride named knowledge. Now I put it in English, is it anything easier to understand? Rather mystical. It is the life of the bride named knowledge. This comes to you by chanting. This, is, this chanting is the very life of the bride named knowledge, which comes to you as an effect of the chanting. Vidyavadu. Jivanam. What does it mean? This morning we talked about how when bhakti becomes not only apratihata, nishta, uninterrupted, but how when it becomes ahituki, unmotivated as well, that this bhakti has become shuddha, pure. And how when our practice of bhakti reaches this stage, we develop a taste, an affinity for the very practices of bhakti, which were previously like medicine and have now become like food. Not only food, but dessert, sweet, relishable, and I'm living on that. When my bhakti is apartihata, uninterrupted, my intelligence will have precedence in my practice. Beneath that stage, my senses will take precedence in my practice, and I'll be able to engage myself physically, but not as well intellectually, because I can as well intellectually engage myself. I cannot understand the theory, Shastra, that well, my faith will be coma, tender. When my intelligence becomes fully engaged, and my tender faith and heart becomes strengthened by the fire of of reasoning about my faith in conjunction with, we call this Shastra Yukti, reasoning in conjunction with, with scripture, with revelation. Then my faith becomes strong, nishta. My bhajan, my practice becomes nishta. Instead of anishta, it becomes fixed. It becomes fixed. And what is the characteristic of that fixed bhajan? How does it manifest in your person? You become flexible. <laughs> you understand? Fixed bhajan means flexible person. 
Train out of peace with Nichena, you have to be flexible, Mahaprabhu said. Humble like a blade of grass. The environment spoke to him. You should be why aren't you humble like us? The environment's saying it as I saying, but we aren't able to hear it. So the Guru comes to speak louder to us so we can understand. So in Nishta we know. Oh, so many things to avoid. How it won't help me. And I'm guided, my life is being guided like that. Some disc- discrimination is the characteristic of this stage. Fine, fine discrimination. Fully using the intelligence in bhakti also. Nasta prayeshu abhadreshu nityam bhagavatasevaya. Take some intelligence to study the Bhagavatam. And what will happen if you do? You'll get a good bashing on the intellect. Intellect will be bashed in the pages of Bhagavatam. How short it falls. How limited it is. How it is inferior to the self and therefore cannot on its own reveal the self. Bhagavatam will wean us from relying on intellect. It will wean us from relying upon our senses, upon our mind, and from the sleight of hand, intellectual sleight of hand that allows us to think we've gone somewhere by collecting information, for example, about spiritual life without integrating it into our life itself and changing our life. In this stage, intellect is ruled, but fine intellect, sumedasa, and shastra yukti, logic that is guided by scripture. But in the next stage, ruchi, then what happens? Heart has come out. Heart has come out. Bhakti is now has no motivation whatsoever. No material motivation. Pure. Ruchi means Shuddha Bhakti. We use the term he's a pure devotee. He's not a pure devotee. We don't know what it often very mean what it means scientifically speaking. This is Ruchi. Still there are so many stages of development within Shuddha Bhakti. But at this stage point is heart comes out over intelligence. One has a super kind of logic. This is called Shastra Yukti Sunipun, in the words of Kaviraj Krishnas. Shastra Yukti Sunipun. Like he's got scriptural understanding, but a genius. A genius. Spiritual genius, scriptural genius doesn't mean he simply can re- or she can simply quote so many verses and so many things. But how to put them together? How to just make common sense that spiritual life is really all about, that it's so uncommon in this world. Like Prabhupada's short statement would give some, someone would say something about Krishna Leela. Why, what is it like there? And he wants some detail. And you say, why don't you go there and find out? You see, those kind of statements. Those are like, this is Shastra Yukti, Sunipun, scriptural genius. You're not just citing so many verses and so understands the thing. In Ruchi, guided by the heart, it gives a super kind of logic. That logic can never be defeated. Can never ever be defeated. You always have an answer. Guided by the heart. He's tasting it, you see. He's feeling it. Vaishnavism is a, is, a, is a feeling. He's got the feeling. He's not thinking about it anymore. He's feeling it. We should think about it enough to apply ourselves such that we'll get some feeling for the whole thing. When you become deeply a feeler, then you can talk about it in a way that will be relevant in different times, in different places, and circumstances, and so forth. Bring it to life. It is alive. We make it dead. 
as much as we are identified with matter, still, even in our spiritual practice, we tend to deaden or take the life out of revelation by making it into a specific dogma and so forth. And, and it, there are parameters that fits within. There is a philosophy, but even the philosophies, it, it, all the books are only an outline to the whole affair. This is what scripture tells us. That's what the book tells you. All the books is only an outline to the book of life. And one page has got your name on it. And you have to write that page. This is your page. Now. Write your life there. You have to become a real devotee. This idea. And you may sometime wake up and see what that means. Where you will associate with whom and why. It may be a surprise to us. God save me from my friends. We may have to say that at some point. Gopis heard the flute of Krishna on the Sard Purnim, the full moon, of harvest moon in August. They heard the flute of Krishna all in their own houses. None of them knew that the girl next door also heard the flute. The next door also heard the flute. And there were a thousand eight reasons why they shouldn't have gone to meet Krishna in the dead of night. If they had thought for a moment, as I said, there would have been a thousand reasons why not to go. From a scriptural point of view, from a religious point of view, from a social point of view, from a practical point of view. They didn't listen to the mind, and they didn't wait to see if anybody else was going. They went. They knew, this is right. I should do it. They didn't wait to see, is everybody going to agree with me before I go forward? They knew it. They had some feeling for that. And they went. And what did they find? Yes, they found Krishna. But what else? They found her also and her and so many other. That's the group you want to be in, you see. That's the group you want to be in. But those people who listen, who know, that's right. I have to make it part of my life. That is submissive hearing. They probably emphasize so much. You hear it. If you want to go home, you have to know a home knowing man, home knowing woman, a home knowing person is essential for home going. And when a home knowing man speaks, then that hits home. And home is in the heart. And we know that's true. Something we'll hear, yes. And what we should do, if we're hearing in such a way as to make progress, we make that part of our life now. Not that we just attach it to our memory and use it at some point to bolster our own ego in front of others, make a point, while we are not applying it even in our own lives. No. Better to be silent than to make it part of your life. And your life will speak louder then. Your hollow words. They wrote only seven or eight verses. His standard of teaching was what? By example. Which as we say in common English parlance, what? Example speaks louder than precept. He brought this home more than any other acharya or great uh, philosopher and mystic in the Indian religious history. Uh, so many who were writing long and tedious explanations of reality, a metaphysic, not that they shouldn't have, and it was well done and so forth. And, and they also set a good example. But, but he taught by example entirely practically to drive this point home to us. So we have to pass through this kind of fire. This is the kind of group we want to be in. 
those kind of people, we find it's the majority. It always looks like it's the minority. If I stand up and say what's true, I, who knows? I may be, I may be ruined. You see, spiritual progress will always look like that. When it comes before us, it always looks threatening and a little foreboding. We have to join this thing over and over and over again. I said, Nishta, fixed practice, shows up in one being flexible, as what Mahaprabhu taught. He said, who is fixed, they will be very humble. Not, I know everything. Not, I just collected all this information in the book and I can regurgitate that. No. With some openness, with some flexibility, it's a big topic. What do you know about it? <laughs> Even theoretically, what do you know about Gaudiya Vaishnavism? It's a huge topic. Well, I'm quite a reader and studier, you know. I, I, just, I studied Prabhupada's books many, many, many times. So many times. Listen to every take. And then, then the other books, his books that his books pointed to. And I thought I would read every book. I would listen to every take. And I realized <laughs> it's not possible. <laughs> This is the folly. This is the folly of the Madhimadikari. Get enough to apply it in your life. Of course, who's going to preach and teach has to know something. That's that's true. For that purpose. So, to come to Ruchi, the taste, the moving, uh, if it's unautomatic, something like that. We're moving now in automatic in terms of our material sense of identity and our spiritual life is kind of on hold and Every now and then we, we, we turn it on and we turn it off. It's just the opposite then, in Ruchi. He's attached to bhakti. He's living for that bhakti. The opportunity to speak about Krishna, to chant the name of Krishna, and so forth. Living for that. And other things are just going on automatically. My life is going on automatically, without thinking about it, eating, sleeping. So, long introduction. We come to Vidyavadu Jibanam. The next stage. What is this next stage that I said earlier? If we have dismantled our material identity, a bundle of desires as it is, in the context of cultivating Krishna Bhakti through Namsan Kirtan, then another sense of identity will awaken. Kirtana Prabhavi, Smarana, Svabhavi, a great poetic, most an important perhaps, perhaps statement of Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati Thakur ever made. It gives him in a nutshell, Kirtana Prabhavi Smarana Svabhavi. And by Kirtan, the mind and the senses will be arrested like they can in no other attempt to meditate. And Smaranam, meditation, Svabhavi, Svabhav, one's real Sarup, will come naturally and automatically. Not a force, in any force, it will appear. This is what Mahaprabhu is saying here. Vidabha Dujibhanam. What does it mean? I'll be brief and bring the discussion to a close. Although there's room for much more, but I'm going on for some time. Vidyabha Dujibhanam means the life of the bride named knowledge. The husband is the life of the wife. This is the idea in Indian culture, especially. In any, any, it should be, it should be like that. And the other way around, too. <laughs> goes both ways. Krishna, Krishna is Krishna Nam, non-different. So Mahaprabhu is saying, this Krishna Nam, this chanting of Krishna Nam, Krishna Nam is saying, 
the, the, the bride named knowledge. Who is she the bride of? Means the bride of of Krishnanam. It brings out the bride named knowledge. It means bhakti. And bhakti in asakti. Not with attachment to bhakti, but with attachment to the object of bhakti itself. Nanda Tanuja, Krishna, has appeared in his heart. Paramatma is completely displaced now. The world that he oversees, Mahaprabhu has bid farewell to. Nanda Tanuja has come in his heart. Why has he come in his heart? Because a certain kind of knowledge has manifest as a result of this kirtan. What is this knowledge? It's bhakti. Now, what does that mean? In Gita, Krishna, what does Krishna say in the ninth chapter? He says, Rajavidya Rajaguyam. He says, I'm going to speak now about the king of knowledge in the highest secret. Well, what is it? Have you read the chapter? What is the last verse? Ninth chapter. He says, the beginning he says, I'm going to speak now about the highest knowledge. In the last verse, he says, The highest knowledge is devotion. You know, there's this argument, long-standing argument, devotion versus knowledge as a means to spiritual attainment. Is it bhakti that brings knowledge and then you get knowledge gives liberation or is it bhakti that gives liberation? Or is it both? It's a long philosophical debate. It ended in the Gita, Krishna says, very simply. The highest knowledge is bhakti. When you love, you know what to do. There's a kind of knowledge in love that is essential knowledge. No extra information. After all, all acts are informed by knowledge. And we act in order to be happy. We are happy in love. When we find love, we, we, it's a wonderful thing. We cannot rest, materially speaking, until we find love. We are all searching for that love. We cannot rest. And when we find it, what happens? A new kind of movement. Another, you become still at that point. You understand? Love is dynamic. It's moving. Union and separation. Union and separation. It's a wild thing. We're moving frantically in search of love. When we find it, we can rest for a moment, only to be moved in another way. You understand? <laughs> this is Krishna Leela. This is the idea. That means this highest knowledge is bhakti itself. And what is bhakti? That is the sarup shakti of Bhagwan. Maya shakti is one thing. We are under that influence, illusion. What are we? Another shakti. We talked about this this morning. Tata. Basically a product of our environment. With whom we associate with, oh, we become like. Associate with matter, which has needs, we feel we have needs, we become a taker. And we become materialistic and we become like matter, we become like ice, when in reality we're water. What is the potential of water and what is the potential of ice? The best thing you can do with ice is melt it. Then as water you can do so many things. Could it come out from that? How will it be possible? As we explained readily over the last few days, by bhakti. Even if you take another path, you have to have some bhakti in it for it to be successful. So why not all bhakti? It will be all success. This is the idea. And so we will not be left with just cleansing the heart, not just extinguishing the desire of material existence, Baba Mahadavagani Nivapan Chetudapan Marjanam. Not just with a taste, 
Ruchi, Now we come to this, Vidyabhadujibhanam. The bride named knowledge, Surup Shakti, this means perfect knowledge, means the perfect way to act. You understand? Knowledge is just not something. It's connected with action. It informs action. So the perfect way of acting is the perfect knowledge. And this Surup Shakti is perfectly loving Bhagwan. That's what it does. It's perfectly loving Bhagwan, loving Krishna, like gopis. Perfectly loving Krishna. They are the embodiment of perfect love of Krishna. Absolutely selfish, not even spiritually selfish, what to speak of materially selfish. Not calculating, but forgetfulness. They forgot themselves. They're just doing. This perfect love, embodiment of Suruk Shakti, in effect it is Krishna. This is Achinta Beda Beda. The heart of the devotee corresponds with the form of Krishna. You can't have one without the other. Well, this is the bride named knowledge of Krishna. This is Swarup Shakti. That constitutes perfectly informed action, which is love. And this comes into the heart of the chanter in this stage. We call it Asakti. It's a perfect thing because what did I say in the beginning our material identity was based on? Attachment. Mine. What does Asakti mean? Attachment. But what is the attachment to? Krishna. What is the result? An identity. Another sense of I. Based on a very different sense of my. Krishna's mind. Love has that power. To conquer him. Krishna's mind. I'm the power of my love. I'm just glimpsing this in this stage. And as this stage is perfected, one has graduated from practice. He enters into bhav, the world of spiritual emotion, which is another next development. And what that is about in the culture of that is a big topic we'll have to discuss on another date. So, are there any questions? Right. Yes. I, uh, I can remember as being as a child it seems in that uh, being in the state of a child, there's a sense of freedom and carelessness and no worries and no sense of fear and things like that. Uh, and like always playing. You know, children are always wanting to play or something. And the sense is, is the, I know in, in some of the Krishna Rilas, as their children playing, is that what we're aspiring for? Yeah. So it's a way of talking about it that may help your need to have Krishna Leela answer to reason, help it uh, to be satisfied, that need. But it does not do justice to it. It's not the same by any means. And perhaps the strongest, one of the strongest evidences for it is that, that it doesn't endure. It's really childhood is a condition in which we have not yet developed a vehicle through which to uh, fully experience the fruits of the seeds, the karmic seeds that we've sown. So they'll come on. Some of them are there, but they'll come on as the body develops. So it's not like Krishna which is non-ending and there's a lot of ignorance and there is a lot of suffering actually in childhood and there's a lot of fear also but sometimes it's talked about in that way and I can understand and it's 
useful to some extent as a metaphor to become childlike. Childish is kind of like putting your hands up in the air, what can you do? You can't do it on your own, Hare Krishna, I give up and let Krishna take over, something like that. What else? Any other point? Yes. Thank you, Marashi, for a really wonderful class. Um, well, you're 50% of that. You're listening, all of you. Give yourself some credit, too. <laughs> so you're explaining, and you explain very uniquely, um, philosophy and you know, really how to surrender the selfishness. But it just seems like we can hear and we all get realization, yes, that's right, I have to do this, but then you know, why is it so quickly? I know my cover is over, but I know previously you were here and then immediately you were accept and you were just, that was it. But it just seems like without contamination that even though it's explained so attractively and so practically still you know, we just, you know, we go back again to our... Previously you would hear and accept means? Well, I'm just saying in previous ages, uh-huh, I see. someone could hear and... Yeah, well, it's the nature of conditioning. It's, it's uh, anadi karma, you know, you've been moving in a different direction for a long time, since a time without a beginning, so habits formed in youth are hard to overcome. <laughs> so, habituated in a particular way, kind of change overnight and and so we get a glimpse especially in good company good association that's why that is emphasized so much we should keep good association that will very much um, help us to progress it's like it's a gradual process in the way that cooking is gradual but it has to be on the stove on the fire to cook gradually so good company sadhu sangha that's like the fire. So I was explaining this, uh, I think you asked a question like this. At a certain point, what will be more important than our practice, because of our inability to put into practice the vani, the instructions, will be the vapu, the personal association, as much as we may emphasize the, the former. The ability to put it in practice will very much come from the vapu, close company of advanced devotees. That will help us more their own ecstasy, their own bhava, their own faith, their transcendental kind of reasoning and so forth, that will shut down our reasoning that in our stage will will take, as I was saying earlier, the life out of the instructions. We'll deaden them. Because the mind is a dead thing, intellect is a dead thing. It will make them less than what they are. Make it into a formula. And, and, and you will lose sight of what the purpose of it is. And it just becomes niyamagraha, without knowing the meaning and so forth. This is what happens. And so if we need that association. Nothing is emphasized more than that. And as some people say, well, what can I do? I live far away, I can't get association. And I say, then move. <laughs> it's not gonna, you, have to, you have to change, you have to do something. And it's your part. All you have to do is put yourself near somebody like that. Is that so much to ask? <laughs> So you, you have to invite them there or something, you know, on a regular basis, find a way, get good company, hear the talks and so forth. We get initiated, we get the tools to deal with the karma. Karma does go away by your practice also that you don't recognize. Karma is apararabdha, it's not yet manifest, that will be destroyed first. But the prarabdha, which habituates us in a particular way in this present life, that will be most difficult to overcome, it will take time. 
So we'll come in a, in the stage of ruchi, uh, in a stage of nishta, most of the effects on arthas coming from karma, good and bad, will be erect, eradicated. In ruchi and asakti, then these higher stages, it, it will be completely destroyed. In bhava, then, one is daivim prakriti mashrita, as Krishna says in the Gita. He's a mahatma. This is Bhav Bhakti. Before that, Ruchi Asakti, very advanced stages. This karma has no effect practically in Nishta. We we'll speak of Ruchi and Asakti. But below Nishta, it has effect. So it interrupts our practice. It's interrupting our practice. So that's your condition. That's what you've come to it with. And that's what you have to deal with. So you have to focus on this is what I have to deal with. You have to identify it and so forth, and keep good company. And it, it takes time, but to ask such a question as you do indicates to your own sincerity of, of practice and concern for making progress. To the extent that we're really concerned about making progress, that's the ingress of, of madhyam. That's what the hallmark of madhyam is: discriminating how to make progress mm-hmm. on a regular basis. That every day I'll make spiritual progress. We should live every day like this, but today I will make spiritual progress and feel it. I'm feeling, I'm making spiritual progress. That's the day that was, was well spent. Otherwise it's not well spent. That should be your criterion by which you judge the value of the day. So when you see, like, good company pushes this on us like this. Hmm? Takes time. Habits formed in youth. Since the time without beginning <laughs> are hard to overcome. You know, then you hear bhakti is so easy and so forth, but it, what it means is comparatively to other methods, very easy. But it's, it's difficult too. But comparatively, it's very easy and user friendly. Anything else? Yes. I'm, I, I'm troubled inside because I, I agree with, every, with what you were saying that if I understood it correctly, that devotion is ultimately the uh, is better than than just pure knowledge, just reading, being academic, and uh, and that rings true for me because that's what I do. I read. I'm, I'm very academic, but I cannot. I envy those who can be devoted. I cannot give over my devotion to virtually anything because I feel that I would be a, a fool. I can't even, for example, I can't. Allow myself to even chant Krishna because, um, or I, I, I have difficulty because I feel that I'm. Well, maybe that's not the right the word, not the right word. Maybe that's not the real thing, and and therefore I'm a fool if I mm-hmm. become. Yeah, it's a problem. If I give over to that. If I surrender to that. I understand. Does that make sense? And yes. So how does how do I get past this? It's a personal problem. Yeah. The way to get past that is that you have to think very deeply, which you like to do, about the shortcomings of thinking. <laughs> you think? That's very practical. You have to think very deeply about the shortcomings of intellect in terms of its capacity to afford comprehensive knowledge, perfect knowledge. Tako pratishtanat. Reasoning can never afford perfect knowledge. It's ultimately circular. You can find a fault in anything. You see, you have to understand that reasoning is not a suitable vehicle to take you beyond itself. 
if you want to know yourself as a unit of consciousness, if you can reason this far, that I'm consciousness, not matter, then you can understand, with a little bit of further intellectual exercise, that reasoning is absolutely unsuitable in and of itself, vehicle for revealing myself, because it's inferior to myself, or it doesn't have the power to show. If I'm superior, I can, I can show an inferior thing. But an inferior thing cannot show a superior thing. You understand? So intellect cannot cast a clear light on being, because it's dead in itself anyway. Intellect is not a spiritual thing, it's not alive. It's a form of matter. It's subtle. So because it's subtle, we, we, we get caught up there. You know, it's more free. Like, you know, if you have a good intellect, good education, you don't have to work as hard, theoretically. That's why people go to school. So intellect seems to free one, it seems to take one somewhere beyond the limitations of a physical life. But it only can take us so far. And it can't take us to the self. It's an imperfect vehicle. So the perfect vehicle is faith. Now, if you think we have faith, but that's not how reasonable is that? But the reason that faith is not so reasonable. Faith is not unreasonable. Faith is, is no doubt. You're free from doubt, then you can move, right? Suspicion leads to suspension. So you're suspicious. This is what your intellect is doing to you, you see. Your intellect is trapping you. You cannot move. You cannot go forward. You're trapped by the intellect. So you, you, if you can understand this point, and you're nodding your head, I mean, now you have to give it a good bashing. Hmm? Like I said, Bhagavad is very beautiful because it invites us, use your intellect here. Apply your intellect, it says. Nityam Bhagavata Sevaya. Study the Bhagavat very carefully. You have to use your intellect for that. What happens is this intellect just gets a bashing over and over and over again. What is its limitations? How incomplete it is? How imperfect it is? The more you try to go beyond intellect, simply by an intellectual exercise, the more you will be discouraged from going there. The more you try to understand, to insist on knowing before going, knowing before serving, the less that you, will be, you will be able to serve. If you try to enter that domain that is beyond intellect, by the force of the intellect, you will be hurled down from there. This is repulsive to the Absolute. That's a petty thing of intellect, and I have to answer to that? God? I mean, God is saying, you think I have to answer to that? The petty thing. What you can reason in your head, it is so, and you can always find somebody who can reason better than you, even no matter where you go. Everybody can find somebody. So it's never complete, is the point. And God's saying, are you, not, are you insisting? This is how you want to approach me? I have to answer to that? You'll be rejected, hurled back. Gyan shunya bhakti, gyan shunya bhakti, gyane prayashura pasharamanteva. Mahaprabhu liked this very much. And who's speaking it? Brahma, he had four heads, four brains. He said, oh, this exercise of intellect, an attempt to go beyond its limits, is fraught with difficulty. And I have four heads, I've thought it out. Hmm? What shall I do? Then he said, You stay wherever you are, whatever your position is. And here, get a good company in a succession of charges, great teachers, and here, submissively, here. This will 
put the intellect in place. It will give you a spiritual uh, color to your thinking, to your intellect. A faith-colored thinking in intellect. You, how you get faith? You have to associate with people who have faith. It will be contagious. One um, uh, disciple of my Param Guru, the Guru of my Guru, Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur, he had a disciple who was a, uh, a learned fellow, young man, and he was very much um, fond of reasoning about spiritual things. He was an, an Advaitin, a Gani. And so they, some of the disciples of Bhaktisiddhanta came and they, and they met him and wherever and they preached to him and tried to convince him of the bhakti and they couldn't convince him. They said, we may not be able to convince you, but our Gurudev will be able to convince you. So please come and have his darshan. So it was set up and they told Bhaktisiddhanta, he's a very learned man and he's a Dwaitan and very intelligent and so forth. And, and so we brought him here to have your darshan, Guru Maharaj. So he told me, this, this man told me this, he became a disciple. He said that Bhaktisiddhanta Sosittagra came in the room and I had all my questions. And he came in the room, he sat down, it was just me and him. And for 45 minutes he spoke about Krishna Leela without giving any philosophy. With such feeling and emotion that I was, I was devastated, I was convinced that oh, such a thing, I must have that. Without answering any, any question, not asking, do you have any question? He said, and I, I joined. Then I had the liberty, he said, to travel with him for six months on the tour. And everywhere he'd go, he would give a talk, and then he would ask any questions. And I would always raise my hand and think, well, here's my chance, I'll give a question now. And he never called on me for six months. He never called on me. He refused, in a, in a sense, to, to come down to his intellect. And this man became a great disciple of Bhaktisiddhanta Saraswati Thakur. And then later, he said he had the chance to meet with, the, with one of the Shankaracharyas, the leaders of the Advaitin line that he had, had been in, which is a Jnani line, which puts knowledge over bhakti. This was in olden days. So he was there and he was in the darshan of the Shankaracharya. These, these people ride on elephants and, you know, in India there, big people in the Ganmarg. And he was at the house of a king. This was a time when there were still kings in India, royalty. And the king was a disciple of that Shankaracharya. So the Shankaracharya was given dissertation on Vedanta. He asked for questions. So this young man, disciple of Bhakti Siddhanta, said, well, here's my chance now. Gurudev didn't answer my questions for six months, but now I want to ask questions of this fellow about Advaita Vedanta. And he realized, well, Gurudev has put so many things inside of me, I didn't realize it. So he began to ask, and the Shankaracharya answered. And then he said, but this question. And he answered, but, 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 an answer came, answer came, and but, but, and he was boxing him in. This young disciple of Bhaktisana was boxing him in a corner. He had him in a corner. And the Shankaracharya gave the answer. It's like playing, playing chess, you know. And then this young man, he, his name was Adi Keshavadas, he knew, I've got him here. He's shifted the ground here. It's a whole technical thing. When he was talking about the Paramartha reality, he shifted it to the Yavaharic reality. I've got him. All I have to do is say this, and he's defeated. He looked around, all the king's guards with their swords and everything. This is the king's guru. So he just he was satisfied. He didn't say anything. He thought he might get his head cut off. But he was satisfied. 
bhakti is the highest knowledge. Hmm? What Chaitanya Dev has given. So, anyway, by good company, who have faith and emotion and feeling for this thing, you have to keep that company, you'll get some sense of it. And I ask you then to think about, with your intelligence, the limitations of intellect, how it's a folly. It's a total folly. Insisting upon knowing before giving. And for that matter, we admit to you, every religious discipline, every spiritual discipline, every philosophy has its limitations. Ours is no, no different. The reason that people attach themselves to Gaudiya Vaishnavism and Slach is because they have a certain psychology that's been formed by something called Sukriti. It's acquired over lifetimes. It makes them disposed toward that logic that says to them, that says to them, yes, that's everything. That's all the answers. But the fact of the matter is, the nature of the subject is such that it cannot be perfectly expressed in language. Language is inadequate to express it. So, however sophisticated it may be, and thought is inadequate. That's the basic premise. So, the thought, when who goes to the land of faith and comes out from there, from samadhi, to talk about it. We talk about it as best he can in a compelling way based on realization. But the logic will fall short. So if you want to investigate the logic of Gaudiya Vaishnavism with a microscope, you're going to find some holes. And we say that. That's our philosophy. That's part of our philosophy. You understand? Tarko apartishtanat. Simply by that approach, you're going to find some reason. If you love your reasoning, if that's what you're attached to, and that's the only damn thing you can serve, and that's what you're going to be, a slave to your reasoning. And your reasoning will always give you a reason not to serve anything other than your reasoning. And then you'll be stuck. It will always give you a reason. If you're looking for one, you'll find it. That's for sure. So there you'll be. So you have to turn on this, uh, this master that you've been serving faithfully. Why? Why are you serving? You think about that? Reason about it. <laughs> Why are you serving your intellect so faithfully? So devoted. Hmm? I'm afraid, I think. Yeah, so what has it done for you? It has only made you afraid. <laughs> That's what it's done. <laughs> it's made you afraid. Is that good? That's what's doing it. What you're serving is, is causing your, your problem. You're serving your intellect. So it's, it's, it's not making you sure. It's making you doubtful. You know, you're getting the opposite result of what you want. It's a trap, and I, I don't want to get out of it, actually. So everything you're saying is, it's, yeah. rings true, but I, yeah, I... Uh, Take Prashad. <laughs> <laughs> Good idea. <laughs> you need more security. Yeah, Take time. It's a particular problem other people have also, to one extent or another. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but here, we're talking about the problem. We're identifying the problem. Mm-hmm. That should stand out like a light to you. Huh? The problem is being identified and amplified and you know, exposed uh, for what it is. The naked form of it is, is coming before me. That should give you some faith. You understand? So, all right, we talked for some time. You all have been very attentive. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Hare Krishna.